I love this collection of old Puritan prayers anonymously uh, assembled. And I want to read one of those prayers to you. The words will be on the screen so you can follow with me. So powerful. And I pray to prepare your hearts to hear God's Word today and hear God speak to you. O source of all good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created. My Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute. His self-emptying, incomprehensible. His infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above. He was born like me that I might become like Him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to Him, He draws near on wings of grace to raise me to Himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, He united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Here in His wisdom, when I was undone with no will to return to Him and no intellect to devise recovery, He came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost, as man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. O God, take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my mind. Let me hear good tidings of great joy and hearing, believe, rejoice, praise, adore, my conscience bathed in an ocean of repose, my eyes uplifted to a reconciled Father. Place me with ox, ass, camel, goat, to look with them upon my Redeemer's face, and in my account myself delivered from sin. Let him with Simeon clasp the newborn child, let me with Simeon clasp the newborn child to my heart, embrace him with undying faith, exulting that he is mine and I am his. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give no more. Let's pray. Father, for the gift of your Son, our Savior, for the sacrifice made in our stead, for the salvation provided for us with certainty. For our hope now and for our hope eternity. in eternity, I thank You. Father, I pray that what we hear today would humble us, would fill our hearts with gratitude, would enlarge our sense of Your goodness and Your grace, would magnify Your glory, would embolden us to tell the truth about You, to believe it with all of our hearts, to speak it with confidence, to trust in the sharing of it to bring life where there is only death now. Father, I pray that the result of our hearing and responding today would be worship. And Lord, as we prayed earlier in the service, I pray that someone today would call on your name and be saved. Someone would hear and believe and respond, surrendering their lives to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and would receive grace upon grace. Grace that takes away our sin. Grace that reconciles us to you, Father, forever. Grace that ensures a glorious eternity. Grace that changes everything. So Lord, now, by your Spirit, speak to us through your Word. Lord, hit our hearts. Hit the center of our will, our desires. Change our thinking. Father, conform us to the image of Christ. Make us ready for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today is Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 through 6. If today is your first day with us ever or your first day in a while, I want to encourage you, just want to invite you, if you'll take some time in the next several weeks, to go back and revisit some of the messages in this very short series, Call His Name Jesus, 
from the end of Isaiah chapter 52 through Isaiah 53. Each of the messages certainly stands on its own merit, I hope, but I think you'll find some real value in seeing the connectivity between these messages that all portray one beautiful picture of Christ, the promise of Christ given the Old Testament hundreds of years before He came. Today in verse 4, we see these words. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. When I first started looking at this passage and put it on paper, to begin to make notes, make observations, try to delineate my thoughts, one thing that struck me in this text was how frequent are the pronouns. As you look through that text in your notes or in your Bible, just see again those words. Our griefs, our sorrows, we, our transgressions, our iniquities, over and over and over. And I couldn't agree more with Martin Luther who said the sweetness of the gospel is found in personal pronouns. The personal pronouns of the gospel. I'm not sure what all you're going to hear today because I've got a lot that I'm going to share. And we're going to sit at a buffet of Scripture today. But I want you to hear this if you hear nothing else. The message of the gospel is profoundly personal. For those of you in this room who are in Christ, for those of you who embrace the gospel, the good news, and you've heard the telling of it, and, and you've responded to it, you've received it in your heart, you believe it, it is yours. This message of hope is your message of hope. Then I can say to you emphatically, God has placed His affections on you personally. This is not just collectively. This is not just universal. This is not just theoretical. God has placed His particular affection on you, knowing you, knowing your condition, knowing your sins, knowing your specific transgressions, knowing your weaknesses, knowing your failures, knowing your inabilities. On you personally has He placed His affection. It's personal. Every part of this speaks to us, me, to stand here today, and as you sit and listen today, to imagine that the God of gods, the King of kings, in whom is perfection and eternity, set His affections on you, is a profound thought. And I want you to realize that today. As a seed of worship, to know that God loves you. He's placed His affection on you. How do we know this? Because we see it in the substitutionary work of Christ. Now, now some of the words I'm going to share with you, let me just say this preemptively, particularly maybe for some of the younger ones with us today. They're going to have a bit of a theological sense to them. But I hope you'll get the weight of the meaning it's in the substitution of Christ that we see the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. When we talk about God's love, and we say it sort of generically, sometimes maybe without clarity, maybe sometimes without any specificity, or even with, without understanding exactly what we're saying, we can summarize it by saying, I know that God loves me like this because according to Romans 5.8, He demonstrated His love for me, and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. It's in that substitution that God in His eternal affection towards me looks at me in my sin and designates Jesus as my substitute. So Jesus receives on Himself the worst of me and I receive from Him in exchange the best of Christ. 
In that substitution, I see God's love for me. I was thinking as I wrote this out, one of my favorite songs regarding the love of Christ, the gift of Christ, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And how does He save us? We see it in the second verse so clearly. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. If you want to take away from today, if you want something to put a song in your heart, a bounce in your step, something to give you hope for whatever you face, it's this, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood, Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the personal aspect of of the work of Christ for us. When we think of Jesus and His coming, it was personal and it was in a substitutionary way for me. And that's perfect love. When we think of the nature of the atonement, we also see that this work of Christ, this word that we call imputation, I want you to write it down. If it's new to you, write it down. Let me explain it for a moment. In the imputation of Christ... We see something that's doxological, not theological. Now, some of you are saying, I have no idea what you meant by that. That doesn't even make any sense. Use regular language like you would if we were sitting at Hardee's or something. Let me explain. Imputation of Christ. Again, it's this perfect exchange. Christ took all my sin, and if you belong to Christ, He took all of yours as well. He took it all. All of your sin and mine placed on Christ. He paid the punishment for it. But it didn't leave me with a vacuum. It didn't leave me with nothing. In fact, he exchanged it for something much greater. He gave me his righteousness. So now in the great accounting before God, the judge, when I stand before him one day, all the good things of Christ earned for me, his sinlessness, his defeat of temptation in every way, his perfect obedience to Christ, his sacrifice for my stead, every good thing he purchased for me is given to me. It's put on my account. It's imputed to me. And when we understand the nature of what he did for us, the nature of the atonement, Christ took my sin as a substitute, He gave me his righteousness. This becomes not just theological, like that's an interesting concept or term to believe in. It becomes doxological, which means now I have a reason to worship God. This is why we worship him. This is the root of all Christian worship, that he became sin for us so that he who knew no sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. That's doxological. When you think of the atonement of Christ, how vast of an atonement is this? How big is this subject? How how incredible is this to comprehend, to imagine, to begin to try to explain? And the only word that would fit would be infinite. The work of Christ is infinite in its value. Infinite in its value. How do we understand the infinity of Christ's sacrifice on the cross? First think of the one who made the sacrifice for us, Jesus. Jesus, the man on the cross. The God-man, true God from true God, as we've learned as we've gone through the Nicene Creed on Sunday evenings. Jesus, the man on the cross, is God in the flesh. He is not created. He is creator. He is not on that list of things that God has made. He is the voice that made them. He is the one that sits on the throne in judgment one day in front of whom all will appear. Jesus, the man on the cross, is infinite in His glory and goodness. And wrath, the price The price of sin for all those who have denied the authority of the Father, who have rejected the will of the Father, who have refused the rule of the Father, all the wrath rightly placed on every man's sin was absorbed by Christ. That wrath is infinite in its scope and duration. The Bible teaches that the judgment for man's sin is an infinite judgment. 
To sin against the Almighty, to sin against the infinite, is a result in infinite judgment in hell. But Jesus, for all those who belong to Him, who have placed their faith in Him, who have heard that good news and believed it, and trusted it, given their heart to that, have an infinite grace given to them. The infinite value of the cross is applied to them. So I ask you, as we look at this text, we see the nature of the atonement. We see its vastness. We see its worth to inspire our worship. We see how it describes God's love in a specific way, not an emotional way, but that He stood in my place. We see how personal it is, unique to everyone who believes. And I ask you this question, for what did Christ atone? When Christ was on that cross, for what did He atone? What did He pay for? The atonement is a payment made. We've seen in these texts before and in the weeks prior to this, this is a, a penal atonement. In other words, there was a penalty for sin, and Christ took that penalty for us. It was a substitutionary atonement. I deserve the penalty, but He paid it for me. In that penal substitutionary atonement, exactly what did He atone for? And so I ask you these two questions, because this addresses some of the teaching that's so pervasive in our age that doesn't elevate the work of Christ on the cross. It actually diminishes it. And beyond diminishing it, it may border on actual heresy on what took place when Jesus died on the cross. I ask you these two questions. Is physical healing in the atonement? Or, or, or in what way is physical healing related to the atonement? Let me give an illustration. You say, why are you asking this? Well, consider these words. I just read them just a moment ago. With his wounds, we are healed. I was on Twitter a couple of days ago. And I saw what I'm sure was quite unintentionally ironic, a message about deception. So one of the most notable deceptive teachers today, false teachers, Creflo Dollar was in his car, and he was giving a little tweet, a little video message about, I'm going to pray for folks about deception. Now, if you know anything about Creflo, one of the phrases you'll hear him often say in his messages is claiming physical healing from the work of Christ on the cross. By his stripes we are healed. You should have no sickness. You should have no disease. Now, the irony is, as Creflo was talking and he used his hands to speak, I noticed he had a big splint on his finger. And I'm thinking, your theology doesn't even work for you. If it won't solve your splint, how will it solve the much more serious issues that we're facing? The question is, should we look at what Christ did on the cross and use it now to speak to my flu or to my surgery or to my cancer? How should we understand these texts? Well, let's consider these thoughts just for a moment. The atonement is about redemption from sins. The atonement is about redemption from sins. Now, ultimately, it's also about relief from sin's many effects. Now, I want to explain this for a moment. What did Jesus do on the cross? He reconciled us to the Father. What separates from us from the Father? Our sins. What sort of effects do our sins have? Many. Many effects. And ultimately, those effects will be relieved by Christ on the cross. I mean, again, consider the personal nature of this. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Almost every one of us, if not all of us in this room, can identify with our own experience with sin and the pain that it's caused, the grief it's caused, the sorrow, the remorse it's caused, the regret it's caused for us. Can you fix that, Carson? I'm not sure what's happening with my sound. We know that there is an effect of sin on us. It's not just the condition, the legal condition between us and the Father. It's the wear and tear on us emotionally and physically 
psychologically. Does the cross address those things? Yes, God cares about what sin is doing to you, but that's not ultimate. What's ultimate is the separation from the Father. What the cross does for us is redeem us from these sins. In the long term, though, it gives us relief from its effects. But recognize this, when we talk about Jesus' work on the cross, we're talking about restoration here, not therapy here. We're not talking about, look what Jesus did to give you a more satisfying life. Look what Jesus did to help you fulfill your own sense of self or worth. Uh, Look what Jesus did to help you deal with the struggles of day-to-day life. Yes, those are secondary effects. They're not primary to the purpose of the cross. While there's certainly an immediate relief to be found in our salvation, I'm not at odds with God. I don't have to feel guilty anymore. I don't have to bear this weight of regret and remorse anymore because I've been set free. I've been made new. God's given me a fresh start. To claim that Jesus died to take away all sickness is not what the Scriptures teach anywhere. It's not what the Scriptures teach. And yet... We can know this simultaneously. The effects of sin, grief, sorrow, discord, brokenness of all types, from those, redemption offers a reprieve. Now, why is that? I'm going to make a theological point here that I think has some very powerful personal value for you. Dealing with the sin, which is the cause, eventually addresses every sickness, the effects. When you deal with the sin, you'll deal with all of sin's effects. So consider this, what does the Scripture promise us? us? That one day we'll be in the presence of God, where not only will our sins be forgiven, we'll be freed from their power, and we'll be absent from their presence, and we'll not have their effects anymore. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more death. But remember this truth, folks. When you hear these quotes, when you hear your favorite pop preacher on TV or that prosperity gospel teacher claiming blanket coverage for every sin and sickness just because Jesus died on the cross and we misappropriate Isaiah 53. Remember, disease is not a sin. Now, it's a consequence of the total effect of sin in the world, which is not the same thing to say you're sick because you sinned and I can connect dot A to dot B. It is to say with the testimony of Scripture beginning in Genesis, the world that we live in is a broken place. And one of the many effects of the sin that came into this world is, is the fall. Things deteriorate, and they break down, and dis-ease happens. And that's part of the regression that sin brings in the world. Disease has no penalty that must be atoned for. It's not in the same category as sin. And disease does not hinder your relationship or fellowship with God. In fact, in many cases, I would suggest, and some of you know this firsthand, personally the presence of sickness or debilitation inability hardship handicap might actually greatly enhance your relationship with god as you learn to trust in him rely on him find his strength in your weakness christ did not become disease for us folks that's not what the bible teaches he became sin for us that's the glory of the cross and again am i saying that christ can't Heal sickness. No, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I would follow a New Testament pattern. If any of you are sick, let them call the elders of the church together, anoint them with oil and pray, and the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Pray. We pray for sin and sickness. But we know that healing is not always God's plan now. But ultimately, it always is and will be. Remember, 
2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him sin who knew no sin, so that we could be righteous. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What is that curse? We have sinned against the law. Or 1 Peter 2.24, He bore in Himself our sins in His body on the tree, that we might stop sinning and live to righteousness. 1 John 3.5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So understand the beauty of the cross is much bigger than my temporal infirmities. It addresses my greatest eternal need, my separation from the Father because of my sin. It reconciles me. It deals with my sin issue. While I was reading this, as I put put these thoughts to paper this week, on a blog from a prosperity gospel teacher, what about Matthew 8, 14 through 17? You have this account of Jesus doing something miraculous. It says when he entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. I mean, two miracles there. One, that he wanted to heal his mother-in-law and two, that she began to serve him. These are fantastic things. Amazing on their own. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So how do we make of that? Here's Jesus healing his mother-in-law, and not only her, but all those who came and all those who were sick. Well, remember what's happening in the Gospel of Matthew, along with other Gospels. Jesus is defining himself. He's legitimizing himself. He's proving himself to be the Messiah. He's demonstrating his true identity and his power over sickness and death. And what we could say, ultimately, is that Matthew 8 is to Isaiah 53, he who heals our sicknesses, as Matthew 17 is to Revelation 19. In other words, this is a preview of what is to come. He's showing you under the reign and rule of the Messiah. This, by the way, if you'll store this little tidbit away, you'll see this again in several months when we get to this in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 17. It's a preview of what the rule and reign of Christ will look like ultimately in the kingdom of God where every disease and sickness will be subject to him. So he's giving a messianic preview of future tense. What about 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24? To this, for this you've been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Well, if you read all the context around 1 Peter chapter 2, you continue reading all the way from 18 through 25, you'll see that what Peter's really doing is preparing people to endure more suffering, not saying you're going to be relieved from it. The work of Christ on the cross was not intended primarily to relieve temporal suffering. It was designed to relieve eternal suffering and separation from Christ. So what's the conclusion to that portion? Physical healing... In answer to the question I pose, is not in the atonement, but it does come through the atonement, ultimately. Ultimately. It's not in the atonement. You're not missing something because you don't have enough faith, because you haven't spoken the right words, because you haven't claimed it sufficiently. If you're wondering why the atonement of Christ, though you're a believer, has not healed you of all your sicknesses, the promise is ultimate. Through the atonement, we're going to be forever reconciled to God, and we're going to be fully enabled to enjoy Him forever without limitations, without spiritual limitations, without intellectual limitations, 
we'll be able to enjoy him. Psalm 73, verses 24 through 26. You guide me with counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. What have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. This is reality. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's your hope. Not feeling great this morning? There's your hope. Your heart may fail. But God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Forever. Not just for a few more good months or a few more good years or a couple more good decades. But forever. What about Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. To deliver us from here. Or Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Christ, by his intention, by his work, the image of the invisible God. By him were all things created. We see that he is over all things, the head of all things. And this one who is head over everything, creator of all things, came to us, came to earth to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. What did he do? He is now reconciled, verse 21, in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The disease that we'll care about in eternity is not our sore back. It's our sin-sick hearts. And that's what God heals in Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 18. What is Jesus doing? They feared that in this teaching of the gospel that maybe somehow those who died before Jesus returned would miss the benefits. And to that, Paul writes these words, This we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until His coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what's the point of all of this? This reconciliation, so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. You see, the encouragement that comes from the cross is not that this sickness that you now feel, you'll get over soon, only to die again. The encouragement from the cross is that everything that separates you from the Father will be reconciled so that you can enjoy Him forever. The Bible teaches this, our present corruptible bodies when I say corruptible, what I'm talking about is the reality of our condition. The older you get, the more undeniable the corruption of the body is. We're, de we're degenerating. We're going to die, barring His return. Unless Christ returns, you're going to die first. The Bible says our corruptible bodies will put on incorruptible. Every good thing follows that. Every good thing ensues from that. When this corruptible body puts on incorruptible, every good thing happens. Every bad thing becomes untrue. Every bad thing becomes untrue. And why is that? Because of the atonement. Because Christ has made us new. 1 Corinthians 15. I know a lot of scriptures. Track with me. Stay with me. It's worth it to eat from this buffet of God's word today. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's death. But we shall all be changed in a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Aren't you glad of that? That you'll be raised imperishable. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortal, then shall come to pass. Then shall come to pass what's written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What should that do for us? Makes us steadfast. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing what God will do, keep doing what he's commanded you to do. Our 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that this tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands. We know that one day, this which is mortal, he says, will be swallowed up by immortal or life. In Romans 8, 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we're saved. So there's the good news. Every sin and sickness now? No. Every effective sin eternally? Absolutely. This is the glory and grace of the cross. This is what God has done for us. Everything bad undone, everything good provided for us because of the atoning work of Christ. This is what he does. Now, last question from this text. For whom did Christ atone? Much more difficult question. Much more divisive question historically in church, though it need not be. There is a biblical answer to the question, I think. For whom did Christ atone? For in this text, we see this statement. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The question we ask from that text, then, in what sense have all the sins of every person been addressed? Will all of Christ's purposes, or God's purposes, I should say, Will all of the Father's purposes for sending Christ to die ultimately be fulfilled? There's a typo there. Will all the Father's purposes for sending Christ to die ultimately be fulfilled? Or will some of His purposes be frustrated, thwarted? What did God intend to accomplish through the sacrifice of Jesus? That's the question. What did He intend to accomplish? And did He accomplish it? Was He successful? Did He do what He intended to do? You know, if you were to ask someone the question, for whom did Jesus die? By far, the most common question you're going to get is, well, he died for everyone, right? Everyone. But we have to dig a little bit deeper to answer that question. Did he die for everyone in the same way? Did he die for Judas in the same way that he died for Peter? Did he die for Pharaoh in the Old Testament the same way he died for Paul in the New Testament? Or more deeply, are there people in hell today for whom Jesus died? That he died for their sins and yet they're in hell. What does the Scripture say to these things? Well, the connection here is in the substitutionary atonement. If we agree that sin creates a penalty that must be paid, and I think the Bible is emphatically clear about that, and if Jesus, in fact, paid it as a substitution for those who did the sinning, then that substitution also necessarily has to be specific to those He intended to save. He made a payment for the people He intended to save. Sinners and sinners atoned for. And the language of Scripture regarding the atonement is a completed one, not a potential one. Now, while at no time is the gospel to be confined to any particular gender or ethnicity or nationality or class of people, we know that the gospel has to be offered without distinction to everyone. The Bible's clear on that. We make the gospel offer without distinction to everyone. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Or Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
We know our commission as God's people is to go and therefore make disciples of all nations. Luke 24, verse 46 says, He said to them, it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Or in Acts, chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Or Acts 13, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Or Acts 17, he reasoned in the synagogue, this is Paul, with the Jews, with the devout persons, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Or Acts 18, he reasoned in the synagogue and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We know that God's means of providing salvation is through the gospel. And because of that, our responsibility is to pray with diligence. Our responsibility is to proclaim with, with confidence. Our, our responsibility is to persuade with all the might and means that we have. And yet we're trusting on God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant all, that I might win more of them. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, We persuade others. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We take this message of what Jesus has done, and with all of our understanding that we can muster, we present, and we proclaim, and we implore, and we, and we plead, and we pray that people might respond. Because we know this is the end result. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. We know the end result is a vast kaleidoscope of people representing every ethnicity and every background, every locale on the planet that have heard and responded to the gospel. But we heard some truths last week that humble us. They're beautiful truths that elevate God's grace and God's sovereignty in our salvation and humble us, recognizing what God has done for us. And they make His grace so much more amazing. We heard that every gospel presentation holds a trustworthy promise that everyone who accepts God's terms will be saved. And that since those who desire it can receive it. But in our spiritually dead condition, we're incapable of seeing that which it is that we most need. We're incapable of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And per the scriptures, we're disinclined to turn to Jesus in saving faith. As Alec Motyer said, and I quoted, every aspect of human nature has become inadequate. Every avenue along which by nature we might arrive at the truth and respond to God is closed. This doctrine of divine or absolute inability means we don't make this choice on our own. We don't credit ourselves for our wisdom, for our pursuit, for our desires. In our sins, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and God alone can breathe life into that. So what's the answer? As we saw in Isaiah 53, in those first several verses, who then has believed? Grace. Grace is the answer. The saving call of God that penetrates. It's interesting in these, uh, uh, I was going to say decades, but I should say centuries-old debates of Arminianism and Calvinism, that some of the roots of things that people have derived many different false understandings actually say something very different than people imagine them to. If you go back to the history from the canons of Dort, the canons of Dort are the council in which 
what we come up with, what someone noted at some point, derived or devised as the five points of Calvinism. Some of those are, are, are misleading misnomers and don't uh, really contain all the information that the Gospels contain. Were written as a response to some Arminian positions. But the position of the council is actually this, and I quote, the promises of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. And we believe this, but we believe even more. We believe something even more deeply. So while the gospel is not confined to any race, ethnicity, nationality, or class, gender, and is offered without distinction, without exception to all, the scriptural terms for redemption are almost exclusively particular in nature. For example, Jesus died for his people. He died for the many. He died for his sheep. He died for the children of God. He died for his friends. He died for the church. He died for the elect. These are the terms that Scripture gives us. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the prophecy of Jesus given to Mary, she'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus said of himself in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, who are those sheep? Again, verse 14 of John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know my Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's a sheep, and they're a Jewish sheep. But they're also Gentile sheep. And I'm going to make them into one flock. I'm going to call my sheep to myself. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He died for his sheep. He died for his church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we see the most beautiful analogy of Christ's love for us, like a bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. that She might be holy and without blemish. Or Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. He is the mediator of a new covenant. There's an old covenant that secured the salvation of the people of Israel through covenant. And now there's a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Remember we talked about last week, those whom he calls, he'll also justify. And those whom he justifies will also glorify. Since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ, Hebrews 9, 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Covenant that he made on the cross with his people. And we get to 1 Timothy, as we covered several months ago. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people. But remember, we talked about especially those who believe. Are there benefits to Christ? Death on the cross? Yes, we see in Scripture that he's withholding judgment now. The world is not immediately condemned. Yes, there are common graces that we all enjoy, because God is withholding the power of evil in this world. But there's a uniqueness to Christ's salvation that belongs to those who believe. Some have mislabeled this a limited atonement when it's more rightly said, a very specific atonement or 
active or actual atonement is to say that Christ will accomplish his purpose. Christ was successful in his task. It's to say that the atonement of Jesus was actual, not theoretical. When God sent Jesus to the cross, he sent him on a mission. A clear reading of the Gospel of John without commentary will lead you to understand that Jesus accomplished that mission. He was successful in redeeming those that he sent, the sheep that God had given him. And those sheep will respond to him. They'll hear his voice and they'll respond. And so we would say in conclusion, the atonement is sufficient for everyone. But it's uniquely efficient for those that God has chosen. And a word that some of us are unnecessarily uncomfortable with, the word the scriptures uses for that is the elect. Those that God has chosen. So we say Christ's atonement was specific in its intent. God has a people. It's effective in its provision. He made substitute for those people. He secured it. He procured it. And it actually accomplished what God intended it to do. In the words of Scripture, He justifies many. Many. Our hope in this is we could say that the salvation of the good shepherd's sheep is certain. It's certain. Why is this important to us? Why do we see this theme of redemption running from Old Testament to New Testament reiterated, reaffirmed again and again? There's some incredible hope and humbling in receiving this. Hope and humbling. Part of the hope, I think, is this, and I hope you see it in this text today, that you can find comfort in the particular substituting love of Christ for you. That you're not a generic. You're not just a many. You're a one. You're one that He knows. If you're in Christ, I can say to you, and I can offer this to you if you're not in Christ, if you receive Him and believe in Him today, if you hear what I'm saying and take it as your own, every benefit of Christ is yours. It's yours. If you hear this good news of Jesus who came to die for sinners and died on the cross for their sake, for their sin, and was raised so they could be made right with the Father, so they could be reconciled with Him and have new and perfect life forever and ever. If that is your desire and you want that, and you say, I need that, I want that, give that to me today, it is yours. Every benefit of Christ is yours. And I can say that with confidence in the Scriptures, that that offer is free for me to make to you because God freely makes it to you. And I can also know that when I respond to that, I'm responding to a particular substituting love of Christ for me. Because when Christ died on the cross, He died for my sins, my disobedience. I can also be certain in the effective saving work of Christ. I can be certain in the words of Christ that affirm His effective saving work. It is finished. He completed it. It's done. The language that we see in Isaiah 53 is present tense. The salvation is not potential, it's actual. It's not simply provisional. It's certain. All the words that we see there, all the language there is as it is done. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds, we are healed. He did it. It's done. The sacrificial work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the covenant of Christ is always, always effective. It was in the Old Testament It is in the New Testament. He accomplished His purposes and none will be lost. So you and I can be confident in this. Confident that as we evangelize, as as we gospelize, maybe is a better word. Let's use that turn of phrase. As we gospelize, as we say, I want to tell you some good news. 
I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus who came. And I want to tell you about why he came. And I want to tell you about the effect of his coming. And I want to challenge you. I want to implore you. I want to plead with you to trust us and believe it and accept it. We can be confident as we evangelize knowing that everyone who wants to be saved can be. And everyone for whom Jesus died will be. And that's the work of Christ for us. It's the humbling work of Christ. When we think of this, we think of God in eternity. Knows my name. We think of God in eternity. Planning out the means of salvation that will save me. When we think of God in His passionate pursuit of me. When I think of God in working the means by which my heart will respond and yours. Then I can sing these songs that all glory is to Christ. Then I can talk about being amazed in His presence. Then I can talk about the weight of His grace given to me a sinner. And then when I'm sitting down with somebody that I care about and that I love, I can share with them a God that is so much bigger, so much greater, so much more powerful, a God that is in fact sovereign. Trust Him. Follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your amazing grace for us. We thank You for what was accomplished on the cross. We thank You that You invite us into it. We thank You that You do a mighty work in our hearts, our thinking, our perception, our wills, our ability so that we might respond. Father, and I pray that today some would receive and not reject. Some would bow and not resist. Some would accept You today, not deflect this truth today, not put it off, but Father, today I plead. I plead with You to work in their hearts. I plead with those listening even now to respond. Father, we are great sinners, but You are a far greater Savior. And I thank You for that. I thank You that we as Your people can be confident with the Gospel message to go anywhere to address any people in, in any place. Trusting if we'll tell the good news of our Savior and King. If we'll do our part in obedience. If we'll pray as if You are sovereign. As if our prayers matter. If we'll speak with truth, with confidence, as if our words have power. And trust in You to do what You alone can do that will bring You glory through your grace, for the salvation of all that you redeem. Father, we can be confident. We can trust in you. Father, I thank you for the glory of our salvation in Christ. I thank you for calling us to yourself. I pray now, Father, as you call that some would respond. And Lord, for all those who belong to you today, that we would be humbled. We recognize, God, your goodness that reaches even me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.